I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that it baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now I'd say the culture is definitely more polarized than it's ever been. I'm quoting here. I'd say the culture is definitely more polarized than it's ever been, and I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches in the past that we see today. In virtually every church, there's a smaller or larger body of Christians who've been radicalized to the left or to the right by extremely effective and completely immersive internet and social media loops, news feeds, and communities. People are bombarded 12 hours a day with pieces that present a particular political point of view. And the main way it seeks to persuade is not through argument, but through outrage. People are being formed by this immersive form of public discourse far more than they're being formed by the church. This is creating a crisis. This quote comes from Pastor Tim Keller in an article that was in the Gospel Coalition website titled, The Church Crisis That He Never Had to Face as a Pastor, But You Do. Thanks a lot, Tim, who retired. The crisis we face is partisan division. People are being formed by this form of public discourse, persuaded not by argument, but through outrage. And it's dividing our world, and it's trickled down, and is often dividing our church as well. What Tim Keller is emphasizing is is how bad it seems to have become in this day. Uh, But friends, this isn't the first time that the church has been divided along partisan lines. You know, in today's passage that Liz just read for us, the Apostle Paul wrote essentially this same thing to the church in Corinth. He, He essentially writes, the Corinthian culture is more polarized than it's ever been. I've never seen the kind of conflicts in churches that I hear about there in Corinth. Paul appeals to the church in Corinth, and he's appealing to the church in Camden and the church here today in the world, reminding us that the people of God are supposed to be a non-partisan people. Now, the dictionary defines partisan as a strong supporter of a party or a cause or a person. Now, this isn't to say that followers of Christ cannot and should not have an opinion, support causes, or vote for candidates. What Paul is warning us against is a partisanship that's become poisonous. He's warning us against a partisanship that's become poisonous. And friends, that poison has a name. Pride. Pride. 
pride poisons partisanship then, and it poisons partisanship now. And Paul's writing his letter to the Corinthians using this Greek rhetorical form that was common in that day. And verse 10 that Liz read for us is his thesis. It's the argument that he's making not only in today's passage, but I think we're going to see he's making throughout the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. His argument is that pride is poisonous. It creates partisanship that divides the church. Because we're going to find that pride and division are the thread that goes all the way through the letter of 1 Corinthians. Here in chapters 1 through 4, we're going to see pride and division over leaders. In chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see pride and division around sexual ethics. In chapter 6, we're going to see how pride and division are causing lawsuits among believers. Chapter 7, pride and division around marriage ethics. Chapters 8 through 10, pride and division over food sacrifice to idols and personal freedom. Chapter 11, pride and division manifesting themselves in corporate worship and creating chaos. Chapters 12 through 14, pride and division in the use of spiritual gifts in the church. And chapter 15 highlights how pride and division was caught, how pride, that is, was causing division around the understanding of the resurrection. Paul's purpose in this entire letter of 1 Corinthians is to address the pride that's poisoning and dividing the church. Because, friends, pride manifests itself in the divisive partisanship. And church, we need to take seriously the unity of the church. We need to take seriously the unity of the church because Jesus took seriously the unity of the church. Jesus prayed that the church might be one in John chapter 17, verse 23. He prayed, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Friends, in himself, Christ has united us with him. And in uniting us with him, he's united us with one another. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, we're united not only to Him, but we're united to one another in Christ. Church, our unity is not something that we can create by our efforts. It's a consequence of the fact that you and I are in Christ, which means we are united to one another. Jesus takes this unity seriously because He creates this unity. And more than that, He has left us His Spirit to unify us as a church. The the Apostle Paul also wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And, And the word that Paul actually uses here in Ephesians 4 is literally oneness. Keep the oneness of the Spirit. Because the Spirit, church, makes us one. We are one with Christ. We are one with each other, which is why we just sang in prayer, make us one. Make us one undivided body. The Spirit makes us one. But church, it says right here, 
we need to be responsible for, fight for, maintain, and protect that unity. And we see that disunity was a problem in the church in Corinth, just as disunity can be a problem in the church today. And you might ask, well, why? I mean, why is disunity a problem? If I was to take a poll right now and say, hey, how many of you here are in favor of disunity? Nobody's going to raise their hand. Yeah, disunity, go. I mean, that's like going, hey, how many people here are pro-landmine? Nobody's pro-landmine. Nobody's pro-disunity. Then why is there disunity? It's because of pride. Because pride creates poisoned partisanship. So consider Paul's argument. This is his thesis here in verse 10. So look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, now first, notice that Paul emphasizes the relationship. Brothers. And this includes both men and women, so brothers and sisters would be completely appropriate here. Church, remember, he's your brother. And she is your sister. We are family. And friends, the problem with family is you don't get to choose who's in your family. You don't get to choose family. And there are plenty of black sheep in Jesus' family. I'm one of them. And so are you. And so is he. And so is she. We're brothers. We're sisters. So don't let pride divide us. Don't look down on a brother or sister. But in Ephesians 4, which we just quoted, where Paul says, maintain the unity, the oneness of the Spirit, he says in verse 2, we do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Friends, if pride is the problem, humility is the answer. He says, in humility, with some gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love. And friends, the Greek would actually be better translated as endure one another, or put up with one another in love. And I love that because, let's be honest, sometimes we plain just have to learn how to put up with one another. Endure. Put up with one another. Love one another because you don't get to choose who's in the body of Christ. Christ is reconciling to himself a diverse body from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every political persuasion, every economic strata, every social group. It's a diverse group of people whose political candidates might disgust you, whose lifestyle might embarrass you, whose mask usage or lack thereof might frustrate you, whose vaccination status might anger you, whose sins, the ones with which they struggle to overcome, might appall you. But in Christ, God is reconciling a diverse and a broken people, all saved by the grace and being transformed by the Spirit. And Christ is including them all in His family, and He's making us one. And remember, that family includes you, and let's be honest, you're not always such a prize, are you? I know I'm not. But yet in grace, He includes us all, diverse as we are, and He's making us one. So He's your brother. She's your sister. In humility, show some gentleness and patience. Bear with one another. Church, who do you have trouble putting up with in love, bearing with in love? Is it a a particular person? Maybe it's a personality type. Maybe it's somebody in their position on masking or vaccination. Maybe they hold a particular political position. Maybe it's an ethnicity. Maybe a social group. 
Maybe someone who's hurt or embarrassed or disagreed with you. How does the Spirit need to work in your heart so that you might learn to walk in humility with your brother and with your sister? Back to verse 10 here. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I appealed to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that, that Paul's appeal here, it, it may be that he's tender, he's a spiritual father. Remember, the Lord used Paul to found the church there in Corinth. So he's like a spiritual father, and, and he's speaking to them as children. They're brothers and sisters. We're family. I'm your spiritual father, brothers and sisters. But friends, this isn't a trifling matter. He's also an apostle, a called one of God, and he speaks with the full authority of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is no trifling matter. The unity of the church is of the utmost importance to Christ, and it must be of the utmost importance to His people. And so Paul appeals, again, verse 10, Paul's appeal is that all of you agree. Now, if you're looking at the King James, the King James offers us a real literal translation of the Greek. It literally says that you all speak the same thing. That you all speak the same thing. Now, Old English has a word. We get a word from Old English, that is. Con, expressing intensive force, and fatiri, declaring, to declare with, to agree, to confess. To confess is to speak together. To confess is to speak the same words. We talk about a confession of faith. Those are things which we agree, we speak together, we say, we're in agreement, we know these things are true. Or in criminal proceedings, when somebody gives a confession, then they're speaking the same thing as what is true. And Paul appeals that the church confess, that they speak with one voice. And what are we supposed to speak? With one voice. We actually sang about it to open the service. With one voice, we'll sing to the Lord. And with one heart, we'll live out His word. Till the whole world sees the Redeemer has come. For He dwells in the presence of His people. Friends, with one voice, we confess one Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek to live by His word. We're not going to be divided on secondary things. Because we confess one Lord who has made us one. And we're united to Him, thus united to one another. In fact, Paul goes on and he appeals and he says, he pleads that there be no divisions among you. The Greek word here is schisma, where we get our word schism. Literally, let there be no schisms among you. He uses this same word two other times in the letter to the Corinthians, once in 1 Corinthians 11, and then in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, where he's writing of the body of Christ and says, May there be no division, no schisma or schisms in the body of Christ, but that the members may have the same care for one another. No division, no schisms, equal care for each other. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And he goes on to plead here in verse 10 that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Friends, this was the coolest thing. I, I never knew this until I was studying this passage a little bit more closely. But the word that Paul uses here for being united, being united in the same mind, is the exact same word that is used here in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 19. Listen to this. And going on a little further, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending 
the next. That's actually the word that Paul chooses for the church. He goes, I want you to be mended together, made whole again, united in the same mind. Just like their necks had gotten worn and broken and frayed and started to separate so they were no longer effective. Paul goes, I want you to be mended, brought back together into one mind. Have the mind of Christ in you. The same mind. The same judgment. You see, Paul's saying that your worldview has to change. I mean, we can't think and approach one another the same way that the world thinks and the world approaches relationships. We can't judge one another and judge others and consider situations and handle these relationships the same way that we see the world handling relationships. If we're going to be mended if we're going to be made whole, if we're going to be brought into agreement and united with one another in the church, we need the same mind and the same judgment that we might be mended. And Paul wrote about this in the letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he wrote, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. There's the humility again. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's the mind that we need? We need the mind of Christ Jesus. We need to approach one another as he approaches us. We need His mind. We need His view. We need His heart. Pride divides us, but humility unites us. To be mended together, to be of the same mind, to be of one mind, to have the very mind of Christ among us. Church, we are called to be united because we are united. We're united in Him, and He unites us to one another. And He wants to give us His mind that we might be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Have the mind of Christ within you. Because the problem in Corinth is the same problem that we have today. They were approaching one another not with the mind of Christ, but with the mind of the world. We see them pridefully divided by their favorite teachers. They're looking down on others for the positions they hold and the teachers they follow. I mean, gosh, good thing that never happens to us today. The Greek word Sophia means wisdom. And in that time in the ancient world, there were what was called sophists, so-called purveyors of wisdom. And they were skilled in speech and in rhetoric. And these sophists were really celebrity speakers who would travel from city to city in the ancient world. And they would try to start schools or, or draw after them disciples and followers and learners. And there was tremendous competition in the ancient world as these sophists, these wise men were related. They, they attracted students and there, there grew up rivalries, not only between the teachers, but between their followers. And some of them, stories are told where it even became violent between the followers of these different sophists as they went through. You follow him? How can you follow him? And they started to fight with one another. And friends, the same mentality that permeated the culture of Corinth was permeating the church. 
It was a culture not of argument, but of outrage, much like we see today. We hear Paul write, some people were claiming, I follow Paul. You know, remember, Paul founded the church in Corinth, so followers might have been prideful going, hey, listen, I was, I was there. I was there. I am part of the faithful founding group. And all you newcomers and your newfangled ideas, you're trying, you're, you're despising and rejecting the tested and true ways that we've always done it. That's not how Paul would do it. Remember the good old days? He said some were saying, I follow Apollos. Now, Apollos, we meet him in Acts chapter 18 and 19. He was an up-and-coming Christian teacher, and he was reputed to be a brilliant orator, and his teachings were going viral. You know, and the people who were following him might have been prideful that they were on the cutting edge. Look, we're relevant. We're following this up-and-coming Apollos. And others were saying, I follow Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And there might have been a prideful quest for the authentic and original version of Christianity. You know, getting back to our roots, like Peter said. And others were saying, I follow Jesus. And initially you go, well, that sounds good. I mean, I follow Jesus too. Shouldn't we want that? But what this was really saying was was a prideful, anti-authoritarian stance. I don't need any human leader. I don't need any authority. I don't need any church. It's just Jesus and me. And as we hear, this division had even corrupted people's understanding of baptism. I mean, people were taking pride in who baptized them. And so Paul there, in this kind of rambling train of thought, he's trying to remember, who did I baptize? I I love this because, friends, this is further evidence that the Scripture is fully human and fully divine. It's fully inspired by God, but yet the Apostle Paul here is searching his memory. Ah, let's see, there was Gaius, and there's the household of Stephanus, and who else? But his point, as he's thinking through it, is, hey, listen, guys, baptism is a good thing. But our pride has poisoned it to the point where it's become a partisan issue. The act of baptism isn't about who baptizes. The act of baptism is about into whom you are baptized. Church, prideful partisanship can divide us even using good things. Then, as now, it's as Tim Keller wrote, we're being persuaded, not through argument, but through outrage. And I can imagine them in the early church going, how could you follow him? You know, if you cared about people, you'd listen to what he has to say. And don't listen to him. He's just in it for the money or the fame. Or you're foolish for believing that. Or you're gullible. You've been manipulated. Pride causes partisan divides. I mean, today we still do it, don't we? We divide over our favorite teachers and our pet doctrines. But was Christ divided? Was John Calvin crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Martin Luther? Can premillennial eschatology save you? Will amillennial eschatology condemn you? We divide over music and styles. Is Christ divided? Were the hymn writers Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of contemporary worship musicians Terry Job or Chris Tomlin? We divide over pandemic restrictions. Will masks and social distancing save you? Will a failure to wear a mask condemn you before God? Will your vaccinated status affect your salvation status? We divide over politics. Was Christ divided? Was Donald Trump crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Joe Biden? Did Fauci atone for your sins? Can Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro save you? 
Will you vote? Will your vote for the Democratic candidate or the Republican Party save or condemn the country? Paul's appeal in the passage is not that they come to agree on all the issues, but that they agree to remain united despite their differences on such secondary, non-essential issues. Now, let's be clear, we're not talking about essential or primary doctrine issues. Because in our faith, in our belief that we share, that we confess the words that we speak together, there are things that are essential, such as the deity of Christ, the incarnation, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus, salvation by faith alone. These things we must agree on. And if we don't, we must, these things must be confronted and corrected because they will harm our relationship with Christ. And we're not talking about secondary or non-essential issues on which Scripture, or what we are talking about is secondary or non-essential issues, things on which Scripture doesn't make a clear statement or have a direct position or doesn't affect the gospel itself. And more than that, we're not talking about sin issues. We're going to hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that sin will and should cause divisions because sin needs to be confronted. Sin needs to be confessed. Sin needs to be repented of. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin causes harm in our relationship with God, our relationship in our marriages, our relationship in our families, our relationship in our world, in our church community. So Paul is not talking about primary issues. He's not talking about sin issues. He's saying on those secondary issues, those matter of opinion, those political affiliations, your favorite teachers, your favorite music, the secondary issues like Positions, opinions, masking, vaccinations, these are important, but our unity is more important, church. These are important, but our unity is more important. Do not compromise a primary issue for a secondary issue. Paul says our unity is a primary issue. Don't compromise that for a secondary issue. Christ can unite us even when we differ on politicians or policies or preference or pandemic restrictions. Our unity is a primary issue. Now, some of you might remember that we recently studied, or I guess it is now a year, year and a half ago, we studied the book of Philippians. And when we did, we heard about a church, a conflict in the church in Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, Paul wrote there, saying, I entreat Iodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Like Paul was 800 miles away in Rome, and they were having a conflict so big that he heard about it. And so in his letter back to Philippi, he addresses the conflict. Now, what seems likely is that this conflict couldn't have been over doctrine, because if, if they were disagreeing and one of them was in error on an important point of doctrine, Paul wouldn't have shied away from addressing it. And this wasn't likely an issue of unconfessed sin, because again, if it was, Paul would have dealt with it. So what was going on here was not doctrinal. It wasn't sinful. It was personal. There was some kind of pet peeve, preference, opinion. You know, one of them probably voted for Biden, the other one for Trump. But whatever was their issue, Paul writes in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Do you notice what he says? Agree what? Not on a political candidate. Not on a pandemic restriction. Not on a policy position. Agree what? In the Lord. 
You might not agree on issues, but agree in the Lord. Agree you're both in the Lord. And agree that your unity in the Lord is more important than your difference of opinion. So protecting the unity needs to be your controlling motivation. Agree in the Lord. Because our unity is a primary issue. Don't divide on a secondary issue. And friends, the majority of time that someone leaves a church, it's not for a primary issue. It's not for a theological reason. In my tenure as pastor, I can count on one hand the number of times that somebody has left a church because of a legitimate doctrinal disagreement on a primary issue. In my experience, when someone leaves a church, it's almost always over a secondary issue of preference, policy, or politics. And friends, it's pride that animates it all. I value myself. I value being right. I value my position. I value my understanding. I value my rights over our unity. But church, our unity in Christ is a primary issue to Christ, and it must be to us. And we must protect it. We'll read as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and again in chapters 8 through 10 that we must lay down not just preferences but rights for the sake of the unity of the body because unity in Christ is a primary issue worth sacrificing for. Church, Christ died for our unity. The gospel demands our unity. Jesus taught that our relationship with Him is declared by our unity. So how seriously are we going to take unity? There's nothing wrong with holding passionate opinions. There's nothing wrong with listening to your favorite commentators. There's nothing wrong with voting for your preferred politicians. But where is partisan pride tempting you towards division? How have you adopted the mind and the methods of this world that favor outrage over argument? When are you tempted to look down on others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ who might hold a different opinion on a secondary issue. Because pride divides us. But we are to be a non-partisan people. Diverse, but not divided. Do you hear that? Diverse, but not divided. Variety of opinion, but unity in our Savior. Today, what hinders you? What hinders you from treasuring and humbly pursuing our unity together in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you heard our prayer. We sang it right before the sermon and we declare it again now. Make us one. Make us one. Make us one undivided body. Point out to each one of us where pride is puffing us up causing us to look down and judge our brothers and sisters. Show us where pride is causing divisions and rifts and schisms. And give us, O Spirit, give us the mind of Jesus Christ. Unite us. Make us love. Make us pure. And make us one. Undivided body. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In closing. Stand with us and sing the blessings.